nervous. Because <laughs> I could feel the expectation going up in the room. <sighs> no, I really, really appreciate that. You are wonderful people. <sighs> so let's just calm our hearts, or calm my heart anyway, and let's just pray and just invite the Lord Jesus to be here with us. So, Lord Jesus, we glorify your name. We love you with all of our hearts. Oh, it's going to make me cry straight off. And Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and speak into our hearts your now word for each one of us today, our individual word from our loving Heavenly Father that you want to speak into our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, so we're in the book of Ruth. Um, I was given Naomi today to talk about. And as I was going through her story, I got so excited. Not just about what was going on for her, because she had a bit of a miserable time, actually, as we're going to find out. But actually, it's how God then applies that to us. And um, don't forget, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it says, these things, talking about the Old Testament, these things happen to them as examples and warnings for us. So never read the Old Testament and think, oh, you know, that just happened thousands of years ago. It's not relevant to me. God says, I recorded that because I want it to be an example and a warning to us. So I'm going to be focusing on just one part of Naomi's story, because there's so much in there that we could draw out. And so I'm just going to read chapter 1 and verse 1 to 5. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Marlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they'd lived there about ten years, both Marlon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and without her husband. So Verse 1 tells us two things. There was a famine, and it was during the book of Judges. Now, the only famine mentioned in the book is in chapter 6, and it was much worse than just a famine. They were desperate in every regard, because in chapter 6 of Judges, it says, Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years, he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of the Midianites was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain cliffs and caves and strongholds. The Midianites kept destroying their crops over and over and killing all their animals. So it was a man-made famine... It was oppression by violent men, their property being destroyed, people dying from violence or starvation. They were being driven out of their homes and hiding in caves. Why was this happening to them? God had made a covenant with Israel. He'd given them promises of provision, blessing, and abundance. 
In Exodus chapter 23 and verse 22, God promised, if you listen carefully and do all that I say, I will be an enemy to your enemies and I will oppose those who oppose you. And, in, um, and then in verse 24, he followed on to say, do not bow down before their gods or worship them or follow their practices. You must demolish them and break their sacred stones to pieces. Worship the Lord your God and, and this blessing will be on your food and water. I will take away sickness from among you. None will miscarry or be barren in your land and I will give you a full lifespan. These promises covered every problem that Israel could possibly face. And all that God asked in return was that they listen carefully to what he said and they do it. To worship him only. Not to be attracted by the pagan practices around them. In fact, to actively demolish all trace of those practices. Do that and what would God do? He would defeat their enemies. He would bless their food and water. And of course, that's a guarantee that you're going to have food and water. And he's going to take away all sickness, take away miscarriages and barrenness, and there'd be no untimely deaths. So why weren't the Israelites living with all the benefits of the promises that God had made? Well, it's simple. They wouldn't listen and they wouldn't obey. In Judges chapter 2, verse 11, it says, They did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord. They worshipped various gods of the people around them. They refused to give up their evil practices and their stubborn ways. Elimelech, Naomi, and their sons were God's chosen people. They were living in the promised land that God had miraculously given to them. They, their nation had passed through the Red Sea. They'd been delivered from slavery. They were free. They were chosen, and they were dearly loved of God. You know, we're the same if we're Christians. We've been born again into God's kingdom. We've been delivered from the slavery of sin, and our names are now written in the Lamb's Book of Life. It's no longer us who live, but it's Christ who lives in us. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Now, any problems we encounter, they're in Christ too. And all the answers that we need, they're in Christ too. For this family, the answer to the terrible famine and the oppression of the Midianites was in the promised land. We never find the right answer by looking outside of God. Whether that's running to other people or turning inside to our own problem. They ran away from God's provision because of this intense desire to just relieve the pressure. And they justified it in verse 1 by saying it's just for a little while. In Judges chapter 3, verse 1, it says, these nations, and it's including the Midianites here, these nations God had left to test the Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. 
And he did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who'd not had any previous battle experience. This family, Naomi's family, they were just focused on their next meal and holding on to their possessions. And that meant they were missing the bigger play that was going on here. God was building a people who were experienced in battle and would represent him on the earth. And you know, the same is true of us. Becoming a Christian is not the end of our problems. God promised us that we would have trouble in this world. No, it's the start of a whole new bunch of problems when we become a Christian. Because now we have an enemy, the devil, who actually couldn't stop you from being saved, but will now actively, daily, minute by minute, try and stop you from believing the promises that God's put over your life and living them and, and, and acting on them. God has good intentions over our lives, and the, and, but the devil will tempt us at every turn to run, to escape, to look for the easy way out, to look for the compromise. This is our warfare. This is our warfare, and we must learn to fight it. So in this story, actually, it's interesting to me that there is an abundance of names. Everybody in this story is named, plus the names of where they came from. Now, this doesn't always happen in the Bible. There are lots of people in the Bible who don't get named. There's a man of God in um, Kings chapter 13. He had a really important job to do, but we're not told what his name was. There, we're going to find in chapter 4 of the book of Ruth, the kinsman redeemer. We're not told what his name is. But in this story, this family, we know everybody's names, and it's important because it tells us things. Elimelech means, my God is king. Did he believe that? Did he act on that? Naomi means pleasantness. They were Ephrathites. That means they came from the town of Bethlehem in Judah. And Ephrathah means fruitful. Bethlehem means house of God. So these names were telling us the promises that were over this family's life. God had good intentions for them. And the Bible really wants us to know that. All that he required to worship him only. You know, in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5, it says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. You know, we also have a name over us. We're Christians, followers of Christ. And God wants the same for us. It's the same call over our lives. Uncompromising, wholehearted, sold out, 100% devoted worship to Jesus only. No tagging God on to the side of your life. No taking the bits of the Bible that you like with the bits of the world you like because you end up with this watered-down, tepid, wish-wash version of God that we're told in Revelation chapter 3 that God will spit out of his mouth. He, he wants passion from us because he is passionate towards us. 
So my encouragement to us today is let's just give our lives wholeheartedly to him. No holding back. And just say, Lord, have it all. I'm yours, heart and soul. Repent of any worldly ways and compromises and just put your faith in Jesus, in the word of God and in his promises. And then, of course, in that Exodus 23, in verse 25, he says, and my blessing will be on your food and water. I will take away sickness from among you. None will miscarry or be barren in your land, and I will give you a full lifespan. Now, I want to put a challenge here. Do you believe verses like that in the Bible? Or do you hold up verses like that and put them next to the circumstances in your life, and then do you think, well... God's word can't be true because my circumstances prove it. There's the challenge for us. And that was Elimelech's problem too. The famine, you see, wasn't his problem. And the Midianites weren't actually his problem. He didn't believe that God was bigger than his problems. That was his problem Now, maybe Naomi also lacked faith. We're really not told in the story. But either way, once he made the decision, she had no choice. She had to go. Now, imagine if she was trusting God and she was horrified by her husband's plan. She would have felt so out of control and so at the mercy of his evil decisions. And I just want to say, if there's anyone listening to this, and that's you, if you've been mistreated or abused by someone else's will, I want you to take heart today. Because the book of Ruth shows us really clearly that God does bring good out of evil. And the good intentions that he has over your life, that he's had from the very beginning, he will bring about in your life if you will just allow him to be in control and you will trust his timings. God wants us to trust him, not just in the sunny days when everything is great, but when the finances run out, when something like a business that you've been building for three years just comes to nothing, when you've gone, you've gone for 30 jobs and you're still unemployed, when there's a famine When there's an oppressive nation, then, then God wants faith. Then he wants us to trust him. And you know, while this family, oh no, sorry, we can't see a miracle unless we need a miracle. And if we always run away from problems, we will miss the excitement of God's supernatural answers. You see, while this family were off in a foreign land, they missed the deliverance of Israel that God brought through Gideon and his 300 men. Running away always focuses on the immediate, whereas turning to God, choosing to worship him as the mighty, all-powerful, everlasting, faithful God that he is, and then pouring out our problems to him, shifts our focus to the bigger picture. If Elimelech and Naomi had spent some time remembering how faithful God had been, you know, the Red Sea, the plagues in Egypt, 
the freedom from slavery, and more importantly, the manna and the quail daily for 40 years, the water gushing out of a rock, if they'd taken a moment to think, then the remedy would have been clear. We need to repent. We need to come back to God. We need to worship him only. And then that would have been enough because then God promises that he will fulfill his side of the bargain, which is to destroy their enemies and to provide food and water and to remove the sickness. Do you know, I bet that they, like we do a lot of the time, we think we don't have time to stop and worship and, and wait on God for a solution because we need a solution now. It's immediate. But you see, oh, sorry, let me just get there. You see, leaving Bethlehem felt like an easier option, but it wasn't actually. The journey to Moab took about 10 days through rugged and very steep terrain, 10 days of walking, 10 days of sleeping rough, you know, driving their herds before them, carrying as many of their possessions as they could because you don't turn up in an enemy land with empty pockets. It would have been a hard and difficult journey. So much effort and so much pain. But the devil, you know, he will tell us that, if we, that we can bypass the pain of the moment um, by not waiting on God and not looking for a solution. But what he doesn't tell us is the pain is always worse if we take his suggestion. Bethlehem is on the east side of the Dead Sea, and the land of Moab is on the right side of the Dead Sea. They would have had to travel up through Israel to get to the top of the Dead Sea. They would have had to ford over the River Jordan because there's no bridges. Then they'd have had to travel down the other side, and that's actually up a mountain range because the land of Moab is on a plateau up in the mountains. Imagine that, just trying to get there. And on the way... Before they crossed over the Jordan, they would have passed by the ruins of Jericho. What better example is God saying to them, I am big enough, I can solve the problem, you don't have to go to the land of Moab, turn back now, trust me. No, they went straight past and carried on their difficult journey. And why on earth would they choose to go to Moab? Mo the Moabites were their enemies in Judges chapter 3, the king of Moab attacked and conquered Israel and then ruled over them for 18 long, cruel years. How desperate do you have to be to think that your enemies are going to be your best solution? Well, actually, again, the answer to that is really easy. All you need to do is panic. Then... The devil will provide the fearful and the doubting thoughts, the did God really say thoughts, and then belief will set, uh, unbelief will set in. Common sense goes out the window, and your hated enemies suddenly seem like your best option. All that God has said is the promises are forgotten, and the problem is now bigger than God, and what you would never consider doing in the good times suddenly seems attractive. So how can we avoid making these kind of panic decisions that they made? 
Well, it's by feeding ourselves on God's word. In Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 9, it says, Be careful, watch yourself closely, so that you do not forget um, the things your eyes have seen, or let them fade from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children. And then Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8 says, Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do what's written in it. And Psalm 16 verse 8 says, I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Jesus, you know, explained it this way when he taught us the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9. And I want you to notice the order of the prayer. It's to worship God first, declare how big he is first, and then by the time you start praying about your problems, you can now look at your problems through the eyes of faith that God is bigger than your problems. Famine and oppression are big problems, let's be honest. But laid before the feet of a mighty God who's promised to deliver them from those things and has proved it time and again that he keeps his promises, then there's no need to fear and there's no need to panic. So when a crisis or a storm hit us, if we've been feeding ourselves on God's word, on his love and his faithfulness and his awesome majesty, then our natural tendency, which will always be to panic and to look for anything that relieves the pressure, well, we, we, thought, we, we tell ourselves... Sorry, I need my glasses on. <laughs> right, when a storm crisis hits us, if we've not been feeding ourselves on God's love, faithfulness and awesome majesty, our natural tendency will be to panic and look for anything that will relieve the pressure. We tell ourselves that God understands and he won't mind. But, you know, we fool ourselves. It's a panic decision and God's not in it. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, it says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and sound mind. Okay, so back to the story. In verse 3, Elimelech dies. His, for a short while, has become permanent. Now, Naomi is abandoned in a foreign land, different language, surrounded by truly disgusting idol worship. A, um, Chemosh, Chemosh, a god who demanded human sacrifice. She may have hated the idea of marrying her sons off to Moabite women. And in fact, in uh, Numbers chapter, um, chapter 25, the Israelite men had begun to have sex with Moabite women and join them in worshipping this God, and God had demanded that all of them be put to death. But, you know, I believe that Naomi was a woman of faith who was placed in this impossible situation by her faithless husband. She was abandoned in Moab, and it was crucial that she continued her family line, and so she found Moabite women for her sons. I believe that she chose really well because we never get a hint that these women brought their idol worship into the home. Rather, she appears to have had a saving influence on them. They love her, 
they respect her, and even when both their husbands die and leave them without children, they are willing to leave their home, their families, their religion, their land, their culture, and go into the unknown with Naomi. God takes our wrong decisions and turns them to good. There is never, that is never an excuse to make wrong decisions, but it tells us that God is bigger than us and nothing stands in the way of his purposes. So in, in verse 6, Naomi hears that the famine's over in Bethlehem and there rises in her a longing to go home to her people. So the three of them set off together to make that difficult journey back. And, uh, but how well she must have modelled her faith in God over those 10 years that these two pagan women were willing to leave everything and go with her. But in verse 8 onwards, Naomi shows us her kind, generous, and selfless spirit when she tries to encourage the two women to return to their families and find new husbands, even though that would have left her completely alone to make that hazardous journey back to Bethlehem. Orpah is persuaded to return home, but God does not leave Naomi alone. I want you to hear that. He stirs the heart of Ruth, who sticks with her mother-in-law, and God will not leave you alone. Whatever your circumstances, no matter how alone you feel, no matter how, no matter how abandoned, God will never leave you alone. He will always provide for you. Look to him for it. They finally arrive back in Bethlehem, and of course now all the money's gone. The people are shocked to see her, especially with a Moabite woman. Now, at this point, the, the Bible does show us the bitterness that actually Naomi had been harboring in her heart, and how she's come to despise her own name, um, which means pleasant, and because it's become like this cruel taunt to her. In verse 20, she says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means bitter, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. You know, this is really, really important. We can love Jesus with a passion and we can be wholehearted in our serving of him, but we can also, at exactly the same time, harbor bitterness, jealousy, self-pity, you know, unforgiveness at the same time. It's like this war can be going on inside us and nobody else knows. But it will come out eventually in certain places like it does for Naomi. She arrives home, it's like everything wells up and hits her in the face. But you know, when we allow feelings like those to take root in our hearts, then it gives the devil a foothold in our lives and it stops us from um, seeing things clearly. Because God didn't send them to Moab, they did. They, God didn't send the Midianites, their unfaithfulness did. They didn't stay faithful to God and follow his instructions to listen, obey, and worship and trust him who is faithful. God warned them that one of the consequences of that would be barrenness. 
And God did not call her bitter. God called her pleasant. Her name gave the promise of the end of the story. In Ruth chapter 4 and verse 15, we see that she has a safe, secure and loving home for her old age and her grandson is laid in her arms. The grandfather of King David and the lion of Jesus, the lion of Judah. We must not get caught in the devil's traps. We must keep tied in to the promises of God. And that's got to be in the in the good times, because in the bad times, panic. In the good times, we've got time. We've got time to worship. We've got time to praise. We've got time to dig in the Word and find out all God's promises and what He says over us, and time to absorb that and let it all sink in. And then when the bad times hit, we've got this well, a full well, that we can draw on in those times of famine. So I wanted to... I liked it all the time. Can't see a clock. So I wanted to finish there. And I wanted to give an opportunity for anyone who's felt a bit stirred by this and a bit sort of thinking, do you know, I, I haven't been sold out for Jesus. I, I have been compromising a bit. I have been finding my own solutions for things. I've not been worshipping God only. And I wanted to just give a moment just to pray with you and just allow you to just settle that in your heart and do just that quick bit of business with God. So if that has spoken to you in any way, I want to invite you to just join me in a prayer as we just give this all to Jesus. And you know then, you know when you give something to Jesus, he washes it clean, washes it clean. There is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. There is just repenting, you're forgiven, and you're washed clean. So join me in prayer if you'd like to. Lord Jesus, I repent of the areas of my life where I have compromised, where I've mixed your word with the world, where I've not trusted you fully for every area of my life. And I come to you now and I repent of that. I thank you, Lord, that you forgive me, that you wash me clean. And Lord, I give you my life. I give you everything that I am. I give you what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling. I give you everything that I own. I say, Lord, I am yours, heart and soul. And I will live for you only. I will worship you alone. I will trust you. I will place my trust in you. And I will go your way. I will learn what you say. I will obey it. And Lord, I thank you for your Holy Spirit, and I invite you now to come and fill me afresh. Fill me, Lord, and give me that fresh faith to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.